so it's it's about giving yourself that love and con- and kindness and compassion which I know can be really challenging but it's really it's the way out of a lot of the anxiety that we experience is we think that you know we'll we think that by being really harsh with ourselves it's it's a fast track to self-improvement but it's not it's not at all it's the opposite Welcome to the Good Life Andrew Lee in conversation a podcast about living a happy healthy and ethical life In this podcast we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Jill Stark is an award-winning Australian journalist, social media commentator and best-selling author. She's written three terrific books, High Sobriety, Happy Never After, and When You're Not Okay. Jill is also remarkably open about her challenges with mental well-being. Perhaps more than anyone else I've had on the podcast, she's opened up about her battles with depression, what's worked and what hasn't. It opens a window to an aspect of life that most of us will thankfully never experience, but which all of us need to do better at addressing. Today I want to have a conversation that will be not only engaging but also really practically useful for those dealing with their own inner demons and the friends supporting them. My goal today is to find out what's in Jill Stark's emotional toolkit. Jill, thanks so much for taking the time to join me on the Good Life podcast today. Thanks Andrew, thanks for that lovely introduction. So tell me about your breakdown in 2014-15. Uh, what led to it and, and what you experienced? Well, well, first of all, um, my psychologist later rebranded my breakdown as a breakthrough, <laughs> which, I, which I quite like because I do think that it's often in our periods of struggle and adversity that we find out the most about ourselves and it can be quite transformative and healing in many ways. So, mm. um, so yeah, I, I mean, I'd grappled with anxiety since I was a kid really and I had my first bout of depression as a teenager when I was 16 growing up in in Edinburgh in Scotland by the time I was 18 I started having panic attacks and it was something that I wrestled with on and off over the years um, but nothing quite as significant as what happened in in 2014 and it it came off the back of a very successful on paper um, period in my life. So I was working as a journalist at the age. I had my dream job, um, bought my own home. I had great friends. I was dating an AFL player. I definitely don't do that. That's definitely not the recipe for happiness. It's <laughs> <laughs> my one piece of advice. Um, but yeah, on paper, I had everything. You know, I, I, and, and I just published my first book, High Sobriety, which to my great uh, surprise was a bestseller. And it was a dream come true as someone who was always so into words and made my living through words to, to make the next step and, and um, write a book. It was just such a dream come true. And so, you know, uh, it came as a great surprise to me that I had this quite significant depressive period emotional crash um, at a time when I should have been full to the brim with happiness, you know. Um, and that's what I explored in my second book, Happy Never After. It's like, well, why is it when 
we have, particularly in the Western world, when we, we have most of our, if we're, if we're lucky, we have most of our basic needs met, um, you can be, you can have all this success and have all of these things that you're told will make you happy and you can feel empty and lost and alone and that's where I found myself and I, and I think it was, it was a significant period of, of time off work. I didn't work for, I think, four and a half months. I mean, I was barely able to function. I, I really reached quite a dark place where I wasn't sure if I was going to survive. It was quite, quite scary. Um, and, I, you know, as, as much as it was psychologically um, incredibly challenging, I think it was underneath it there was a bit of an existential kind of crisis happening where I, I really didn't know who I was. And I was having all of these people and external validation um, from external sources telling me that I was a success and that I was, you know, I had value when really, you know, as I say in Happy Never After, I could have had a Pulitzer Prize under one arm and Ryan Gosling under the other and it still wouldn't have been enough because fundamentally underneath it all, I didn't feel like I was enough. Um, and that's you know what I learned from rebuilding myself from the ashes of that of the ashes of that crisis was um, none of that stuff matters. None of the money or success or um, people telling you that you're great really matters if you don't truly know yourself and if you don't understand that um, life, as the Buddhists say, life is suffering. And that's not just that's not a depressing statement. That's just an acceptance that part of the human experience is to um, to feel all of the emotions, uh, to feel sadness and grief and disappointment and confusion and loss. Whereas I had grown up in a culture that told me that happiness was the holy grail. And once you had all these external markers for happiness, you would be complete. Um, but that's just not what happens. And it's, you know, people, in, in Eastern traditions have known this for many centuries and it's only in our kind of westernized consumer-driven culture that we're, we're finally realizing that perhaps, you know, the, the, Toyota, the Toyota Hilux and the breathable yoga pants aren't enough to, to really fill the gap. So yeah, I think it, I think it was a real period of, of um, having to, to rebuild myself from the ground up and realize that I had to, to really all of those things that I was seeking to make me whole, I needed to get them from myself, which was a very difficult and challenging journey, which continues to this day, and I imagine will continue for the rest of my life. There's suffering. I mean, there's what you went through, and uh, through this breakdown or breakthrough, I mean, you talk about some extraordinarily dark days, uh, the inability to get out of bed, uh, you the the amount of tears that you shed sounds like it would uh, fill an Olympic swimming pool, uh, and and that that sense of uh, just not being able to uh, to to leave the home uh, sounds just a, an awful period to be suffering through. Yeah, it was incredibly challenging, and and I think as well there was a there was a degree of guilt that came with it because I'm a very privileged woman, you know I. I'm a white middle-class woman living in a developed country um, who was lucky enough to have friends and family to support me through it and had a, an employer at the time who, who um, supported me financially through my time off. Like, that is not the norm. So I, I was feeling, you know, a degree of, I guess, Western guilt on top of the very real crisis that I was going through. Um, and I think that is 
that is quite a common experience for, for people who who go through these kind of mental health issues from a position of privilege that, that we sort of feel like, well, what have we got to worry about? But, you know, when you're, your suffering is real in, in your own context. And yeah, as you said, like I, I, there was days where I just was clawing myself through the day, like trying to, I felt like I was at the bottom of this deep well and I was just clawing myself inch by inch to the surface. And it was just so difficult and, um, you know, my family are all overseas. My my brother and sister-in-law, my nieces live in Singapore. Um, my parents are still back in, in Edinburgh. And it was so very challenging for them to not be able to be here. Um, luckily, I've got incredibly um, wonderful close friends who who basically kept vigil and, and, you know, made sure that I'm still here. But at the end of the day, as much as I, you know, I dedicate um, Happy Never After to three of my closest friends who really were there in my darkest moments, and, and many others were as well, but ultimately they couldn't do the work for me. I had to do it myself. And I had an incredible psychologist who I still see uh, today who, you know, I walked into her rooms having been in and out of psychologists and psychiatrists since I was a teenager and just being very sceptical and like scared and thinking like I just wanted her to fix me and I, I basically just said that to her. I was like, just give me the strategies, tell me how I can do this. And and she is unlike any other psychologist I've seen before and I think that, that many, this you know, not, not to disparage psychologists, but I, I do think there's quite a reductive approach to mental health where we think we just need to do, you know, five sessions of CBT or take some pills and on our way we go. But Veronica, my psychologist, said to me, you know, the therapy is the work. The therapy is the strategies. This is going to take a long time because when I saw her, um, you know, I was 38 years old and I had nearly 40 years of of disordered thinking and, and, and patterns of behavior that I'd learned from childhood, which we kind of had to unpack and basically rewire my brain. And that takes a, that takes a long time, you know, which is why I think that it would be great if everyone could get into therapy as early as possible, <laughs> particularly our political leaders, no disrespect, Andrew, but I think if our politicians were in therapy from an early age, we might have less ego and more action. It's interesting, Jill, I've, I've talked to other guests on the podcast about cognitive behavioural therapy and about the uh, way in which that can be quite effective for uh, for certain conditions. But in your case, it sounds as though the therapy was, was much more Freudian, uh, going right back to a series of experiences in your childhood. Uh, you talk very articulately about uh, having two loving parents, but still having these childhood experiences in in terms of uh, your brother being unwell and the bullying at school that that really shaped you in uh, in problematic ways. Tell us a little bit about about those experiences and how they affected you. Yeah, when when I'm talking about you know CBT, I, I don't want people to think that I, I'm disparaging that or discrediting that in any way. I've used CBT; it can be incredibly helpful. I still use um, different. Um, uh, forms of CBT in my everyday life, but ultimately those are um, strategies to apply to the here and now almost, right? Um, every single one of us has patterns that we learn in the first five years of our life in those early de 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 sorry, developmental stages where our brain is still 
forming. And it's in those first, the first three years in particular, that what we experience as children is imprinted onto our brain and it affects the way that we interact in relationships and friendships and work in every aspect of our life as we, as we grow up. And, and a lot of it's unconscious. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's how you're parented or how you, you move around the world and what you learn in those early days about who you are as a human and how you are valued or how you, are, how you perceive yourself. That is all sort of downloaded onto us from a very, a very early age. And it's, most of us don't, aren't even conscious of why we keep doing the things we're doing. Why do I keep having the same fight with the same people? Why do I end up in the same dysfunctional relationships? And, and it can mostly be traced back to those early years and the patterns that you develop. Um, so, so therapy, like I, as, as I said, I've been in and out of therapy and it, to, to varying degrees of success over the years, but it was kind of like putting a, a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound, you know? Like, it wasn't getting to the wound underneath. It was just papering over the top of it. So um, with the therapy I did with my psychologist, uh, Veronica, it was really looking at those early childhood patterns and bringing them to consciousness. So understanding, for the first time in my life, understanding why... I kept having these feelings of abandonment in friendships and relationships, how I could, you know, fly into a panic if a friend didn't reply to a text message in a certain period of time, you know, like this completely around. Well, say a little bit more for those who haven't read your book about some of those childhood experiences, experiences. And, and give, give us, us, give us a yeah. concrete example as to how that shaped you. Yeah, so I grew up in, as you say, a very loving fairly well off, not wealthy, but, you know, comfortable family in Edinburgh. Um, you know, and I couldn't understand, because I, I, I grew up with friends who had terrible um, experiences as children, really traumatic things that had happened, and I didn't have that. So I couldn't understand why I was the way I was, and I also couldn't understand why my older brother, who's three years older than me, seemed to be emotionally very robust, and I had grown up quite differently. But so we, and it was only when, when I went back to look at it that I realised that while we grew up in the same house, we didn't grow up with the same experiences. And what I and that's the same for many, many children. With you know, you the middle child will have a different experience to the older child, etc. So I grew up, you know, I was born when when mum was pregnant with me. My father was pretty much in a catatonic state, having had just recovered from being in that state, having had a a, a pretty serious breakdown. Um, and so when mum was pregnant with me, she was dealing with that, that stress. And then when I came into the world, um, my brother, for the first seven years of his life, was very, very unwell with a, a, a range of, of health problems, um, some of which were life-threatening, and he was in and out of hospital. So for, as I was saying, those first three to five years of my life, I was in a, in a family who were present physically, but emotionally were not really there because, you know, understandably, they were looking after um, another child who was desperately sick. Um, so, you know, the, I knew that my parents loved me, but as a child, it was difficult. You know, we don't have, when we're that age, we're pre-cognitive. We don't have the, the um, verbal skills to, to understand that your parents are distracted, not because they don't love you, but because they have a very unwell child, uh, my brother. And so, you know, as I sort of unpacked that in therapy, it was like this feeling of I have of being abandoned, of, of, of feeling neglected and left out was, was something that 
was there from a very early age and it kind of was exacerbated by the time I went to high school when I was sort of 12 to 15 I experienced the most horrendous bullying um, which is again not uncommon but I think often what happens with bullies is they tend to almost know the the, the children the, the you know the weak ones in the pack and I was there with this sort of desperate need for approval and desperate need to be loved and accepted by the group and that kind of had the opposite effect because it just it made I was just so desperate to be accepted that I would act in ways that were were kind of I guess demeaning to me and 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 the bullies kind of jumped on that and I like I understand now that you know hurt people hurt people and a lot of bullies come from their own background of pain so I don't have any ill will towards them now that I understand it but it just it just compounded for me this very real sense that I am not good enough. There is something inherently wrong and broken. And it was interesting that Veronica, my psychologist, had asked me in the very first session, what was the word when I thought about myself? What was the first word that came to mind? And the first word was defective. That I felt, and, and this is what happens as, as young children, when we, we expect our parents to be... Um, bulletproof you know we need them to be solid because we we literally depend on them for us to stay alive you know that goes all the way back to our kind of primal caveman days where our instinct is for the people around us our caregivers to be completely um infallible and they're not because they're human but as a child you don't have the cognitive skills to understand that they're not that they're fallible um, and you instead internalize that sense of of having nobody there for you, and that and that's where it all began for me. And you know, like it didn't immediately remove the anxiety to understand that, but my gosh, did it did it take the pressure off to finally everything made sense in a way that it never had before, and that was just such a relief. So I'm pretty ignorant about therapy. Uh, what is it the work that you're trying to do, Jill? Are you trying to simply explain it? Obviously, you can't change the past. So, uh, so to what extent is discussing that experience enough, or, or to what extent do you actually have to to go back into it and and think about what you could have should should have done? So yeah, I wouldn't describe the work that I've done as as um, Freudian, as you said. I mean, it, I guess it's it's sort of related to that but it's, it's it's a form of psychotherapy where you're really unpacking the patterns that that are that are driving you and the, and this is not you know kind of woo woo which is again what I thought I walked into this room and I to the psychologist room and she's telling me that something that happened when I was three years old is affecting me 35 years later and I was like this is bullshit but it, there is so much science behind this I don't know if you know Norman Doidge who wrote the book um, The Brain That Changes Itself you know about neuroplasticity this is what this kind of therapy yeah. is based upon, whereas, you know, you have these neural pathways in your brain. And if you think about it, the way it's been described to me is if you think about, you know, the hiker's um, footsteps through the forest. So, you know, there might be a very thick forest. And then the more that hikers go in and out of, um, and through that trail, there becomes this well-worn track um, that people keep walking. That's the neural pathways. And they're quite deep and entrenched through the repeated walking or the repeated behaviors as it may be in your brain. Um, so the, the purpose of therapy and the goal of therapy is to, is to re 
to, to create new neural pathways, so different tracks through the forest. So instead of the track taking you to this place of dysfunction and, and, and pain and anxiety, it takes you to this new, more healthy and functional way of being. And that comes purely with sheer grit, determination and practice. Um, because like anything, it just needs to be repeated enough until it becomes a habit and your brain stops going down those rabbit holes. So it's not as if I've never had anxiety again. Anyone who follows me on Instagram or, or any other platform knows that like they, I live with anxiety daily, but it's, a, it's the degree to which it cripples me is greatly reduced through this work. And also, you know, like just to give you an example, you know, I have a very, a very catastrophic brain through, as I said, this kind of way of thinking over many, many years. So if I, I will still, I would have these thoughts of someone's not replying to a text message or they must hate me, you know, whereas now I might still have that thought, but I will very quickly be taken down the new neural pathway of actually no this is not a rational thought and you are loved and valued and you are enough and, and sort of taking myself to that place every time that happens um, becomes, you know, the norm rather than falling into this dark place of um, catastrophic thinking. So I, I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. Your inner critic sounds brutal. Uh, how, did, how, did you, uh, how did you manage to, to quiet the inner critic? So I describe in Happy Never After my inner critic as a cross between Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Regina George from Mean Girls. <laughs> she was <laughs> just loud and relentless and cruel and sometimes demeaning and, you know, very much like the bullies in high school. Um, so I, the inner critic, I don't think ever goes away. And, and we have an inner critic for a reason. It's again, back to those kind of like primal um, caveman days of, of you know, your inner critic is is there in, in some ways to be helpful to to point out when you're going down a path of danger or to try and keep you on on track but it can it, when it becomes um out of balance is when it's it's just loud and excessive and relentless and telling you that you are no good and nothing you do can ever be um useful to anyone so i have learned to really love my inner Regina George and to, to, to befriend her and to, to thank her for what she's trying to tell me, but telling her it's okay, I've got this now, you know, I'm, I'm okay. And um, when I do have that loud inner critic, I do the work that again is part of the therapy. When, I, when, I'm, when, that, when the inner critic is, is at her loudest, that is that three-year-old child who felt worthless and abandoned and scared and alone what she needs in that moment is not me to say oh piss off I don't want to hear you is to actually say hey darling I know you're really scared right now but I'm here and it's okay and you're safe and I love you and all of those things that I needed to hear when I was a child so it's it's kind of like reparenting yourself in in many ways and and talking to yourself the way you would talk to a child to to so I, if you I know that a lot of people so I, I do um well I did before COVID um run workshops which I called warrior to warrior turning your inner warrior into a warrior um and I do exercises in those workshops with people about how they can do that how can they can reparent the child and for a lot of people it can be quite 
difficult and painful, particularly if they had quite traumatic childhoods, to, to give themselves the love because they feel so unworthy of it. And there was one woman in one of my workshops who was just sitting there, like, I have everyone shutting their eyes and trying to connect with that part of themselves. And she was just tears streaming down her face. And it was, it was so um, heartbreaking. And I, and I asked her, what's going on for you? And she's like, I don't, I can't connect with her. I can't find that child because it's just too painful. And so I said, do you have children or do you have children in your life? And she said, yes. And I was like, okay, think of one of your children instead of, if you can't think of yourself, think of the child, a child in your life. Would you talk to that child the way that you're currently talking to yourself? And of course you wouldn't, you know? So it's, it's about giving yourself that love and can, and kindness and compassion which I know can be really challenging, but it's really, it's the way out of a lot of the anxiety we experience is we think that, you know, we'll, we think that by being really harsh with ourselves, it's, it's a fast track to self-improvement, but it's not, it's not at all. It's the opposite. If you think about the teachers at school who were the most inspiring, the ones that, that motivated you and, and lifted you up, they were the ones that believed in you and told you that you, that you could do it. And, and who, you know, when you made, made a misstep, didn't, chastise you for what you got wrong but pointed out how you could do things better and 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 kind of had your back in that way so yeah I think we don't change through um criticism and chastisement we we change through self-compassion and um, patience and being gentle with ourselves one of the things I really appreciate about your writing is you don't just talk about what did work but you're honest about the things that you didn't find very effective. Uh, tell us your views on uh, positive thinking, uh, the idea that uh, people who are depressed just need to turn that frown upside down. Can I swear on your podcast, Andrew? Absolutely. Oh, I think the positive thinking movement is bullshit. I, I, and and I, when I say that, I have to be very clear what I mean about it. I'm not saying that we should just, you know, think the worst and believe everything is doomed, but toxic positivity when we are told to just suck it up and you know um, be grateful all the time and and not acknowledge our own feelings i think is incredibly harmful and we've seen that a lot through this particular moment in history through this pandemic we've seen it um, when people are finding things really tough and they're told well there's hundreds of thousands of people dying in India so you can't be sad about your your lockdown or you know what do you, what do you like you you should be so grateful and of course of course we can look to other people in other places and say god that would be horrendous but when we consistently repeatedly tell people that they're not allowed to feel the very real emotions that they're experiencing we completely invalidate their suffering and when we do that we make it more likely that they will internalize that suffering. And we all know how deadly that can be when people don't feel that they can actually voice the very real dark thoughts that they're having. They don't reach out for help and that can have horrendous consequences. So I think that is to me, the positive thinking movement says you should just slap a smile on your face and repeat affirmations in the mirror until, you know, everything is brilliant. Like, Meanwhile, your life is blowing up around you and you're just expected to, to grin your way through it. That is not helpful for anyone. So I think what I find more um, useful 
is is gratitude and that and and gratitude in a in 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 context not just being grateful all the time and not and ignoring your the the um the reality and the depth of your own experience but looking for the chink of white on the dark day you know we went through last year in in melbourne 112 days of lockdown and i live alone and for the first 10 weeks of that lockdown on top of the first six weeks the six weeks of the initial lockdown that the whole country went through so for 16 weeks if you combine the two i lived alone and didn't have a single person in my apartment for 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 10 weeks of the second lockdown and 10 weeks and six weeks of the first one and it was only you know 10 weeks in that the victorian government allowed us to have a single person bubble which again there's a whole other podcast in the weight that we put on romantic relationships as opposed to intimate friendships and how important they are for our our mental health but that's that's a story for another day but um yeah so um, i went through and don't get me wrong i'm not saying that my experience was worse than anyone else i know that people who were um homeschooling and would have happily (laughs) swapped with me in a heartbeat to have a moment to themselves like everyone went through that um that experience with their own unique challenges um but what I was able to do through the practice that I've, I've done with gratitude and through the work I've done in therapy is to still find every day something to keep me afloat. And, it's, and it was vital, you know, like I, even on the days where I would just wake up crying and just think, what is the point of all of this? I was able to be grateful for something. And so every night when I've been doing this for years, before I go to bed, I write down th- three things that I'm grateful for, or three things that went well that day. And, you know, when you're living inside four walls for 112 days, like, the, like what, what is there? But, it, but what happens with gratitude, it's like a flashlight. It just lights up what's already there and suddenly you can see it. So if you think about when we were at school and you might have done one of those exercises where the teacher sent you out to go and count how many red cars you could see and, you know, how many blue cars you could see and you wouldn't pay any attention to the number of cars on the cars on the road until you have to suddenly look for them and then you see them everywhere and that's that's the same with gratitude when you start actively looking for things to be grateful for they pop up everywhere so for me it would be like the kindness of strangers or um you know walking like we were stuck in 5k's you know like i i was stuck in my own neighborhood that i thought i'd seen all of it and then one day because all we could do was walk around the same five kilometers. And one day I stumbled into a laneway, which was literally a few hundred meters from my apartment. And I found this most incredible, it was, it was called Sunshine Lane, which I just thought was amazing. And um, it was just full of the most incredible street art. Like the most, like, it was like a gallery. It was some of it was, and some of the was like, mm. was this, was the size of a, three-story building and I was like how have I never seen this before but we walk around with our eyes shut and it was suddenly when everything was taken from us and the world shrank there it was the world had opened up right in front of me in an alleyway around the corner from my apartment and it just moved me to tears and I just thought wow there is still so much beauty and joy in the world even when our world has been reduced to the five kilometers around where you live so I think it's it's about actively looking for things that keep you afloat without saying you must be cheery and happy all the time you know but there are things that we can look for to anchor us in these challenging times so i hope that makes sense and there's no i don't think that's a contradiction i think it's 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 um it's not 
telling people that the depth of their own experience is invalid, but also at the same time saying, can you look for things that, as I say, are that kind of little beacon of, of hope when you have those dark days. And even, you know, seven years ago when I was like literally fighting to stay alive, I still find things to be grateful for. And that was so sustaining through that incredibly difficult period of my life. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important distinction, Jill, uh, between the notion that uh, everything needs to be happy uh, versus finding the beautiful moments in, uh, in every day. Uh, you, and you have a, a similarly nuanced approach to talking about pharmaceutical treatments, um, I should say, with the caveat that neither of us are, uh, are doctors. But uh, certainly when you talk about your own experience, you talk about uh, moments at which uh, pharmaceutical treatments helped, uh, but others in which they didn't seem to be uh, boosting your recovery. Yeah, it's, it's difficult because like, I have been on and off medication for many, many years, uh, I'm taking antidepressants now. I've had, I have done for a couple of years. I can't honestly tell you if they're making much of a difference. Like I, it's just so difficult to know. And I'm not, as, a, as you say, I'm not an, a clinical expert on any of these things. So I definitely would suggest that people speak to their doctor and I am by no means anti-medication. Um, I, I'm, I'm just, what, what I think is, 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 one of the major failings of our mental health system is that there isn't a lot of options for people other than medication because the kind of work that I've done in therapy, which has been seven years now and still ongoing, but in those early days when I was really in crisis, I was seeing my psychologist twice a week at $200 an hour. And we get uh, 10 sessions a year rebated through Medicare. But even then, I was still having to pay 70, so I got, I got $125 of that back. And $75 is still a lot of money for a lot of people um, to shell out. But the fact that I ran through my 10 sessions in five weeks, and I didn't go back to work for four and a half months, and most people can't afford to do that, you know? And I think that's where, when we see things like what happened with with, with Andrew Lamming, and I'm not here to make any judgment on whether or not he needed mental health treatment. It's the fact that he was able to access it, the fact that he was able to take time off work and be supported through that is not most people's experience. So which is why a lot of people end up with medication and no real other support. And we know the evidence shows us that medication on its own is not enough to lift people out of a dark place. It's the medications, um, the best evidence for, for antidepressants in particular are in conjunction with therapy, which most people can't afford. And we don't have a system that funds people to have the number of sessions, and I'm talking like 40 sessions a year, you know, like that's kind of, that would be a good starting point, I think, you know, like to really get underneath these problems. Like I say, if you look, take me as an example, that have been there for decades. And that's before you even get into people who are dealing with complex trauma, which I, I wasn't, you know, like I was um, incredibly privileged in, the, in, that, in that position. But, you know, many, many people who are coming from a background of complex trauma, of neglect and abuse and um, substance issues and 
you know, all manner of, of issues that we know um, are, are really sort of um, intertwined with our mental health. The idea that you can do that in six to ten sessions or with a prescription, I think is just fanciful. Um, so I would like to see therapy funded properly. And, it, you know, you, you get the criticism, oh, well, it's just, it's the worried well, or, or, you know, it's just a waste of money. It's like, well, look how many people you would keep out of hospital, you would keep alive if you stopped them. If, you, if I had had that kind of therapy as a teenager, maybe I wouldn't have spent the next 20 plus years, you know, in and out of various states of crisis. Like, so uh, I just... I think that medication has a place and um, for some people it can be life-changing, life-saving, but it needs to go hand in hand with other forms of therapy and treatment that are accessible to everyone, not just people like me who was in a very privileged position who if I didn't have, like I, I had, as I said, had an employer who basically funded me, who paid me in full, my, paid me the whole time, continued to pay my salary when I was absent from work but I still wouldn't have been able to afford the therapy if it wasn't for my parents back in Scotland funding that now so basically the only reason I am still here to talk to you today is because I could afford my mental illness let's jump back to some of the things that you say do, do work in your, your emotional toolkit and I want to run you through uh, sort of about 10 of them so maybe if you can just give me a 30 second version on each one as to why it works and how to make it work. Uh, Marie Kondo and the life-changing magic of tidying up. Well I mean when you declutter your physical space it does help you to declutter your mental space. I find it very therapeutic. We're in lockdown currently here in Melbourne and I plan on spending my weekend cleaning my shower grouting. That's where I've reached the stage of lockdown but it, it can be it can be very helpful to to minimize the clutter in your life and just to make space you know physically and mentally for the work you need to do. Jomo or the joy of missing out? Well, um, in therapy, my psychologist has banned the word should. Um, you know, we are often a slave to should or I should go to that party or I should dress a certain way or I should lose weight and I should, you know, enjoy all these things that other people are enjoying. And we, we tend to be a slave to, to FOMO, the fear of missing out. So we will go to that party or we will drink more than we really wanted to because we feel like we should be part of, of that scene or we should be feeling a certain way. We should be... Um, oh, I should get married because everyone else is, or I should, you know, want to have a partner when really I just want to be single. Um, JOMO is the joy of missing out and really having the courage and uh, the conviction to run your own race and, and say, well, I actually, I don't need to stay out till 4 a.m. because I'd rather stay home and watch Midsummer Murders with a cup of tea. <laughs> like, and if that's what you want to do, then there is nothing more rewarding than really understanding what it is that you need to to make you happy and whole and having the courage to follow through on that so that's the joy of missing out uh, crying or um, in its extreme form what you call carpet grieving so um, when we cry, it's the body's way of letting out emotional pain. And that's why we often, because of the hormones that are, are flushed through the body when we do that, that's why we can often feel really 
we feel a lot better after a good sob, but we spend a lot of time trying to hold it in because we feel like, oh, well, I'm, I'm losing my mind or I'm, I, um, I'm not strong if I, if I allow myself to cry. I would um, urge people that the opposite is, is the case. And I have a place in my apartment in the hallway in my study um, where I designate that for my carpet grieving, as I say, where you bang your fists on the ground and cry like you did when you were a toddler. And again, as I was saying before, that kind of really helps you to, um, to connect with that little inner child who just needs to be heard. And having a good cry is a real way to connect to that part of yourself that you perhaps are neglecting. Exercise and your principle of the first 10 minutes. Exercises are non-negotiable for me. Like it is um, such an important part of my mental health toolkit, um, and I know that that's it's can be just the last thing you want to do when you struggle to get out of bed. And I've felt that very keenly over the years. But my theory is that once you put your shoes on, and once you get out there, just tell yourself that I'll I'll only go for ten minutes, and if I do, if I'm not feeling it after ten minutes, I'll come home. And invariably, once you get to 10 minutes you're feeling better and you'll keep going but even if you don't 10 minutes is better than nothing the idea of vulnerability and how that can draw you closer to other people um i think vulnerability is a superpower i think it's something that we need to lean into more i particularly like to see more men leaning into it more and i understand why because we have very outdated notions of masculinity but i think when we share our, our vulnerability, and that's why I'm so passionate about the work that I do and the things that I've shared or perhaps overshared in all of these books and online is because I honestly believe that what I experience um, and have experienced is not, I mean, I used to think it was abnormal and weird and unique, and it's not, it absolutely is not. And um, the, the opening, in the opening sentences of When You're Not Okay, my toolkit for tough times, I say, we all struggle. Some people might tell you that they don't, but they do. So let's start by acknowledging that you're, not, that you're normal. Not a single person on this planet can escape tough times. And if you secretly worry that you're weird or broken or unfixable, congratulations, that's normal too. Because I think that when we share our vulnerability, it takes some of the pain of what we're feeling away and it allows us to feel seen and to feel less alone. So I think when we're vulnerable with each other, it's, it's such an act of love and compassion. Yes, I had a conversation with a friend this morning uh, who was apologising to me for having broken down in tears in our last conversation. And my immediate response was, don't be silly. Uh, I felt really honoured to, uh, to, to be... Uh, uh, close enough to you that you felt that you could uh, be in tears uh, in our conversation. Uh, so it, it's, it didn't weaken the connection, it strengthened it. It didn't make me admire this person less, it made me admire them more. Because I mean, that, like that, that degree of trust that comes with that act of opening up to you, you know, that, that they trusted you to that extent, like I think that is, that is an incredibly powerful thing between two humans and the more that we do it the more um, connected we feel. You have a beautiful uh, notion in uh, When You're Not Okay of kintsugi, uh, a Japanese uh, principle of repairing broken pottery with powdered gold. What's the metaphor there? Well, I always get teary when I talk about this, so I'm not going to apologise for that because you know what it's like to have people cry around you, so that's okay. <laughs> um, um, 
So when I was growing up, I, as I said, when I first met my psychologist and the word I used to describe myself was defective, I felt broken. I felt like the problem child of the family. And kintsugi is the ancient Japanese art of repairing pottery with powdered gold. And what that means is, you know, you might have a vase that's cracked open into pieces and you can put it back together. It might not look the same, but it can still shine. And they repair, they put it back together with this powdered gold. And so the golden seams are what holds the vase together. And it's those cracks that make it beautiful. You know, as Leonard Cohen said, like the, the wound is where the light enters you, you know, and I think you know, it was Leonard Cohen and, and the philosopher Rumi, they both had um, quotes around that. But so for me, I came to see over the years that the problem child, she wasn't broken. She was, um, she was the golden seams that held the vase together. And I, I really cherish that. I enjoyed your uh, reflections and meditation because, like you, I feel like it's something I should do more often but find, find it hard to get into. But you spoke in particular about the value of meditation as helping us move apart from our thoughts, not needing to, to be present in them but being able to sit on the bank of the river and, and see our thoughts as, uh, as the stream flowing by. Uh, are you able to, to do that through your meditation? Are there particular meditation apps that you've found useful? Oh, I'd like to be better at meditation, but I think, I think that's one of the things that a lot of people say about meditation. It's like, oh, I can't seem to quiet my mind and I can't, I just am always thinking. But like that is actually part of meditation. So I try to be less hard on myself now. And if my mind's going in a million different directions, that's perfectly normal. And um, I use an app called Calm, which is has a series of like number of different meditation tracks that you can use. And um, I use different ones for different ways that I'm feeling. And I, I try to do it every day for at least 20 minutes. Um, and it's interesting because I've noticed in the last week or so, I've only been doing five minute meditations and the difference that's made because it has a sort of cumulative effect. I've, I've seen, okay, I've got to go back to my 20 minutes. That really there's, um, has much more protective effect for me if I do it longer, um, more consistently. But yeah, there's, you know, meditation is different for many people. Like meditation can be, um, like going for a walk or listening to music or you know just trying to switch off our devices for a while and be still like it doesn't have to be cross-legged staring you know at a lake <laughs> on a hillside or something but um, yeah I think what, whatever you can do to sort of just try and be more still and present is helpful. I remember a meditation teacher saying to me that it's the regularity of the practice that matters and uh, he was much more of the view that uh, five minutes a day is superior to two 20-minute sessions each week. Uh, it's a matter of getting into that space on a, on a regular basis. Uh, you're, uh, you're very critical of uh, the, uh, the busy humble brag. Um, why is it that, uh, that, that we need to get away from uh, telling our, uh, our friends and family all the time how busy we are? 
the cult of busyness. Um, yeah, it's be- oh, it's, yes. be- it's become a kind of badge of honor. But I just don't understand how like racing towards burnout is something we should be proud of. But you know, it's it's this idea that if we're not busy, we're not we don't have value as as people. And I think it's it is largely driven by a, a culture of you know living to work and um, a hyper consumerist society that we live in that tells us more 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 and and i think um you know really why do we it's a very westernized thing as well it's sort of a a real kind of wealth based brag isn't it like i'm so busy i have so many things on the go and um you know i think we're looking at other countries that are, are starting to see that this is not a way to be healthy as a society and um, in France they now have a law where workers do not have to answer emails or phone calls or any kind of work communication after working hours which you know people say well how would you even enforce that but it's the message as you would know as a policymaker it's it's the message that that sends that changes the culture as well as the actual legal um, lever itself. So I think it's it's about realizing that when we are saying, "I'm so busy," like what are you actually saying there? Um, that you are so busy, you don't even have a minute to yourself. And and I know that it's particularly difficult for parents if you say, "Well, you should take some time yourself." Well, I just don't have time. It's like, well, what are you what are you saying when you say, "I don't have time" to that little child inside you that needs to be nurtured and taken care of you're saying you're not worth it so I think that's part of the sickness of the culture of busyness is that we're just neglecting ourselves and you can't really be a a healthy mentally um, robust person if you're completely disconnected from what you actually need as a human You're a successful writer of self-help books, but also a keen reader of them as well. You talk about the uh, uh, bookshelves in your uh, your apartment uh, filled with self-help books. Uh, What have you found most useful? What are some favourites you can recommend? Um, So talking about CBT, um, it's a form of CBT. Uh, Russ Harris's The Happiness Trap is a very, very helpful and practical book. and he uses something called acceptance and commitment therapy, which is, again, it's just full of really, really helpful, practical ways that you can kind of change um, faulty thinking. Um, on a more kind of philosophical level, I'm a big fan of uh, Pema Chodron. She's a, an American Buddhist nun and philosopher, kind of teacher, and she, she's got a, a number of amazing books, but one of her books is called um, When Things Fall Apart. <laughs> it was when Things Fall Apart or When Life Falls Apart. And somebody, a colleague of mine at work actually like kind of gently handed that to me at work one day, a few months before I had my breakdown slash breakthrough. And I just was not ready to read that because I was like, what does she mean? I'm fine. And I obviously wasn't fine. Um, but that that book is just incredibly helpful about you know how do you how do you lean into the suffering how do you accept what you're going through because so mm. much of our suffering is comes not from the suffering itself but from our resistance to it so both the happiness trap and Pem- pema children's work are basically you know one is 
a, a Western doctor and the other one is, is a lady whose who's, her teachings are based on very ancient Eastern traditions, but it's the same fundamental um, premise, which is the more we resist these painful, uncomfortable feelings, the more entrenched they become and the more miserable we are, which is the entire, again, premise of my book, Happy Never After, why the happiness fairy tale is driving us mad. It's because, you know, the more we try to deny our reality and wish things were different and why do I feel like this and why am I always like this and what is wrong with me, the more uh, stuck in that cycle we get. So it's about learning, how do you learn to accept the, these big emotions and these complex parts of ourselves and that's a scary thing for a lot of people because no one wants to look at the messy parts of themselves but when you do and when you really get underneath them it can be really liberating final questions what advice would you give to your teenage self what I just think about that that poor girl and how desperately in pain she was I just think I would say to her, you're going to have the most amazing life and you're going to go through some horrendous pain, but there's purpose to this pain. There is purpose to what you're going through and you're going to get to the other side of this and it's going to be wonderful. And that's not to say, you know, life is always rainbows and unicorns, but um, being able to embrace that pain has been the key to a, a lot of this for me and I think I would also say to her that the only approval you need is your own I think that's a pretty solid rule for life <laughs> what's something you used to believe but no longer do that I'm defective <laughs> I I mean we're all messed up in in our own way that is part of being alive. Um, but, you know, as we were saying with Kintsugi and the, the art of making the broken beautiful, like that, the pain has a purpose and the, the stuff that we think is going to kill us and ruin us and break us is often the stuff that makes us find out who we really are. And, um, yeah, I'm not broken. I'm human. That's what I know now. When are you most happy? Um, well, I think what I've learned about happiness is, which is again, um, what uh, Happy Never After was about, is that, that, that happiness is is fleeting and it's when we try to to grab it, you know, like we're like this kind of botanist with this giant butterfly net. We're just trying to constantly trap this thing that is constantly evading us. I think when we realise that joy is fleeting and it's the pursuit of it, you know, you'll have one of these beautiful moments. You might be on holiday and you're watching a beautiful sunset or you've just, you know, it's your wedding or, you know, some, some moment of joy and then you try to recapture it and recreate it and you, you have the anniversary dinner and it doesn't feel quite the same as it did when you had that moment of joy and you feel disappointed. So it's learning to, to live in the small, to live in those small moments of joy. And that's what I find I'm, I'm most happy when I'm just present, when it doesn't have to be the grandest, um, the biggest occasion or the, you know, the most 
the thing you would expect to experience the most joy at. I mean, I remember one of the happiest times I had in recent memory is when our long lockdown in Melbourne lifted at the end of October and we had been locked down for, what, nearly four months and um, I couldn't leave five kilometres and I live in the inner city in the inner north of Melbourne. There's no, there's no ocean near me. And I, well, I grew up in Scotland where we don't go to the beach because it's freezing, but all of a sudden after spending four months of just walking around the same streets, I, was, I had this hunger to be in the ocean. And I said to my friend who lives around the corner, as soon as we can, can we go in the can we go and jump in the ocean? And so they 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 moved the limit from five k's to twenty five k's, which allowed us to get as far as sort of Brighton Beach, which I don't know if you know much about Melbourne, but it's not it's not the most amazing beach. It's it's nice enough, but um, it's basically the bay, and it was October. It was freezing. It was like fifteen degrees, and we got in the ocean or the bay or whatever it was. We got in the water, and I just. I just never felt so alive and so grateful because we had had this denied to us for so long. And it was just this simple pleasure of being in the water and, and feeling that freedom. Well, I was just absolutely euphoric. And yeah, I, again, I'm not trying to recapture those moments. I just live in them. I try to drink them in and just stay as present as I can. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, well, two things. Well, many things, but I think the two that are most important is, is ongoing therapy with my psychologist and the, and, and, the, and the flow-on work that I do on my own, which is a lot of journaling, a lot of um, working with my thoughts. So it's not just like, you know, I go and see my psychologist and she fixes me up. It's all the work that I do day to day to... to um, keep walking that path those neural pathways and then the second thing that I think has been the most important thing the most effective thing I've done for my mental health in years is I stopped drinking two years ago and my first book high sobriety was about my year off the booze in 2011 and it came out in 2013 and I went back to drinking after that after you know learning a lot but I still went back to drinking and, and over the years sort of bad habits crept in and I could basically no longer ignore the huge mental crashes I was having after big nights of drinking. So in June 2019, I, I quit with no kind of real view of I'm quit, quitting forever, but it's been more than two years now and I just, it is the most powerful thing I've done for to keep me on in a much more balanced state of mind. Like it's just, yeah, alcohol is not your friend when you're um, trying to battle anxiety, so... Do you have any guilty pleasures? I watch a lot of reality TV, um, but I, I mean, I do read a lot of books, so I try to counter that, but um, I, I watch a lot of... What's your favourite reality TV show? Well, I watch a lot of trash, like The Bachelor, which is not very good at the moment, but um, and like The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and stuff like that. My favourite reality show, which I get, I don't even think it's in the same genre because I think it's an art form, um, is RuPaul's Drag Race, which I'm obsessed with. Um, so... Yeah, watching a bunch of drag queens sashay down the runway is incredibly therapeutic. Um, and I do probably eat more chocolate than I would like, but, you know, you got to have some vices. I don't smoke, don't drink, don't take drugs. <laughs> so, yeah, I think a bit of chocolate is not too much of a problem. Jill Stark, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. 
Thanks so much, Andrew. It was great to chat. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If this discussion has raised any issues for you, you can reach out to Lifeline 24 hours a day on 13 11 14. If you enjoyed the discussion, I reckon you'll also appreciate past conversations with Nikki Stamp, Lindsay Odes and Elaine de Botton. We've just passed our 150th episode, so we're asking listeners to fill in a three-minute survey to help us improve the podcast. You can find the link in the show notes. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.